Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. I'm Kate Phelps, a second-year pediatric critical care fellow, joining Pradeep and Rahul today. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today, we are honored to have Dr. John Birkenbosch, the senior author of the Prevention and Management of Pain, Agitation, Neuromuscular Blockade, and Delirium in Critically Ill Pediatric Patients with Consideration of the ICU Environment and Early Mobility, aka PANDEM Guidelines, which were recently published in the February issue of Pediatric Critical Care Journal. Dr. Birkenbosch is a professor of pediatrics and pediatric critical care at the University of Louisville School of Medicine and continues to be nationally recognized as an expert in pediatric procedural sedation with multiple publications relating to sedation practices, particularly as they relate to novel uses of procedural sedation medications and regimens. He's currently also serving as co-chair for the American College of Critical Care Medicine's Task Force Guidelines for Sedation and Analgesia in Critically Ill Children, which we'll be discussing in today's episode. Dr. Birkenbosch's research interests have primarily focused on pediatric procedural sedation and implementation of technology advances in pediatric critical care and have resulted in 57 publications as well as several book chapters and a book. Dr. Birkenbosch, welcome to the Pick You Doc on Call podcast. We are so excited to have you on today's episode. I would like to also point out to all listeners that the free full access to the PANDEM guidelines is available online at pedccmjournal.org, and that is pccmjournal.org. Thanks, Kate and Rahul and Pradeep. I'm really excited to be on the Pick You Doc on Call podcast to discuss the PANDEM guidelines. I first want to start by giving a huge shout out to all the team members who contributed to these guidelines development. This is a topic about which I have become quite passionate and remain passionate, but is also one that provides hopefully much needed guidance regarding pain and agitation and delirium for our entire pediatric critical care community. Dr. Birkenbosch, the rationale for the development of the PANDEM guidelines was the high variability that we see in pediatric sedation and analgesia from unit to unit and even provider to provider. Can you speak to this variability and why it's important to address it? That's a great question, Kate. And this variability was one of the key motivators in creating these guidelines. But we wanted to go further. We also wanted to develop a guideline that was broader in scope than what was currently available. The ICU Liberation Bundle provided a paradigm for liberating critically ill patients from mechanical ventilation and the ICU environment. And as we as a task force delved into developing these guidelines, we realized that many elements of the ICU Liberation Bundle aligned very closely with PICU sedation and analgesia. And so it made imminent sense to incorporate all of these topics into the guidelines, an acknowledgement, if you will, that PICU liberation and sedation go hand in hand. Absolutely. I think that is a great point. As we have stated in our prior episodes, the paradigm is to intubate, ventilate, and liberate. I think sedation and analgesia is really intertwined in each of these domains or processes. Dr. Birkenbosch, as we get into the guidelines, can you please highlight how the search strategy for these guidelines were derived? Of course. This was a remarkable group effort solicited by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. We were initially modeled after the Adult PAD, or Pain, Agitation, and Delirium Guidelines Task Force, but as described already, we extended beyond that to include pain, agitation, neuromuscular blockade, and delirium in addition to the PICU environment and early mobility. 
Our task force was comprised of 29 national experts who collaborated over about a 10-year period. The full task force gathered annually in person during the Society of Critical Care Medicine Annual Congress for progress reports, updates, and further strategizing, with the final face-to-face meeting occurring in February of 2020. In addition to that, we had periodic teleconferences, both with the full guidelines task force and the different subgroups of the task force to keep us on track between Congresses. And throughout this process, the Society of Critical Care Medicine Standard Operating Procedures Manual for Guidelines Development was adhered to. Dr. Bergenbosch, that is a very robust process, and I've told you offline before, it's very impressive. Um, What were some of the research principles you can highlight while you're developing this content? We created a descriptive and actionable population intervention comparison and outcome or PICO set of questions. An experienced medical information specialist then developed search strategies to identify the relevant literature for these questions going back to January 1990 and ending in January of 2020. There was incorporation of controlled vocabulary and search terms such as ICU, pediatric, critical illness, and ventilators, among others, addition to PICU-specific keywords. And that way, we had a fairly sensitive pediatric filter to identify records unique to this population. That's great to highlight. Now, as we look into the guidelines, we see the term conditional cited frequently. Dr. Birkenbosch, do you mind highlighting how this term relates to the strength of recommendation as well as the quality of evidence? Sure. There were essentially three different types of recommendations that we made in the guidelines. And they were all, like you say, based on the quality of evidence available. There were strong recommendations, which were the recommendations based on the highest quality evidence. And those were recommendations where we felt that additional data was unlikely to alter the actual recommendation. Conditional recommendations, like you just mentioned, were the ones where we felt that new data might alter the recommendation, but we felt pretty comfortable with what we stated. And then the final is the good practice statement that we incorporated. And that was where the available literature or evidence was inadequate to make a formal recommendation. And so we utilized these only for practices that either had a very low risk associated with them or deemed likely to be beneficial. Dr. Birkenbush, when I looked up these guidelines on the PCCM journal, I found almost 37 pages worth of content, as well as a very large informative supplement. How should a PQ fellow or a resident rotating in the PQ approach these guidelines? I agree. At initial glance, that document can look pretty daunting. Uh, there are a couple of things that we did to allow for, I think, easier access to the content of the guidelines and sort of a quick view in addition to going into detail as the guidelines progressed. The first is that there is a table with all of the recommendations placed early in the beginning of the guidelines um, that you can just look to for a quick, this is my question, here's the recommendation, and go from there. In addition, some members of our group put together a really nice infographic that broke itself up into the seven different domains that we incorporated into the guidelines. And it shows a lot of the interconnectedness between those domains and highlighted different parts of the guidelines within that figure. And so we looked at the same you know, concept that you've already kind of alluded to, and that is that the first thing you have to do is assess your patient, then you have to decide what you're going to do with your patient, and then you're going to have to reassess and, and move on from there. And that's what that figure really outlines for people who are much more visually oriented, if you will. 
Let's go ahead and transition and go into the PANDEM guidelines themselves. What we will do is we'll divide up the recommendations into certain broad categories, namely analgesia and sedation, neuromuscular blockade, ICU delirium, withdrawal, and end with environmental optimization. Let's start with analgesia. This portion of the guideline addresses the utility of developmentally appropriate pain scores, as well as guidance on use of certain analgesics. Dr. Birkenbosch, what pain assessment tools does the PENDEM guidelines recommend? Why not vital signs as a way to assess postoperative pain in critically ill pediatric patients? So let me start first with what we didn't recommend, and that being reliance on vital signs alone. As we all know, vital sign abnormalities are very common in our PICU population, both in the postoperative patient and those that come in with medical disease. These abnormalities can have multiple causes, including the underlying medical or surgical reason for ICU admission, medications that we use to treat those diseases, pain and agitation, among other things. So therefore, while helpful, vital sign changes aren't necessarily very sensitive to just pain or agitation. So that's why we didn't want to rely on them. Not to say that they're not useful, we just didn't want to use them as a first line. So now moving on to the tools. The first thing we really wanted to do, and this goes through the entire guidelines, is recommend the use of tools or scoring systems that have been validated within pediatric ICU patients. And as we discovered literature describing multiple tools, many of which had not been formally validated, we wanted to kind of narrow that down. As kids' developmental capacities also change over time, we wanted to make sure that the tools we recommended covered the spectrum of age and developmental capabilities. Ultimately, we came to recommend the use of four self-report scores for children over six years of age and don't recommend the use of the self-report scores for children under six years of age. And this is important and relevant only for kids that can communicate their pain. And then we also recommend the use of two different observational pain scales which cover kids that are unable to communicate their pain for whatever reason. They're intubated, their underlying disease results in changes in mental status, they're developmentally incapable of communication, that kind of thing. And so these two categories of tools also do not have to be mutually exclusive and can be used concurrently. And I think that's important to remember as well. As a follow-up, what about non-opioid analgesia? I see a huge push from surgeons, for example, to focus more on non-opioid adjuncts rather than continuous opioid infusions. The PANDEM guidelines say that for moderate to severe pain, opioid infusions are recommended, and that was a strong recommendation. However, I would love to go into a little bit more detail on this topic. Okay, thanks for the question. And we as a task force agreed with the importance of this question as opiates are not benign for multiple reasons. The strong recommendation that we made was that opiates should be used as the first-line analgesic in PICU patients, but that's not to say that other agents can't be useful. We actually extensively evaluated the literature discussing adjunct use of both acetaminophen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. In the end, we made strong and conditional recommendations supporting the use of both of these agents or classes of analgesic to aid with postoperative analgesia and to decrease opiate exposure. Unfortunately, due to inadequate literature, we were not able to extend these recommendations to patients admitted with medical diseases, although that would be an interesting topic for further study. Similarly, due to a lack of adequate evidence, 
we did not differentiate between the use of IV versus enteral formulations of these adjunct medications. Related to this, I think it's also important to mention that the guidelines address the use of various non-pharmacologic adjuncts or interventions that can further aid in pain control. And two such areas where we were able to make recommendations were recommendations supporting the use of music therapy, which is applicable to the entire age range that we admit to the ICU, and non-nutritive sucking with or without sucrose to aid in analgesia for infants that are undergoing painful procedures. And again, I want to make it clear, these non-pharmacologic adjuncts or interventions are adjuncts and should not be viewed as replacements for analgesic medications. They're complementary. That was an excellent summary on both pain scores as well as use of specific analgesics. Let's now discuss sedation. We noticed that the use of a scale to assess depth of sedation, such as comfort, or the SBS uh, scale or Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, received a strong recommendation. I would love to hear a little bit about the rationale for this and how does this help decrease the use of sedatives, especially benzodiazepines in the pediatric ICU setting? So just as with the analgesia assessment tools, we wanted to only recommend sedation scales which have been formally validated within the PICU population, hence the three that you just listed. And while we only made a conditional recommendation for the use of the RAS, or Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale, we felt it important to include, as this is the scale used to determine the appropriateness of patients for delirium screening using the available tools that we have. These sedation assessment tools allow us as bedside providers to have a more objective means with which to assess patient comfort, which should then guide when and if patients require additional sedation. This is important as a follow-up to the need for doing pediatric sedation screening as our recommendation that each patient have a target level of sedation also defined at least once a day. This represents a recognition that the sedation needs of patients in the PICU change over the course of their disease evolution, perhaps requiring deeper sedation early on when they are at their highest levels of acuity and with needs for sedation decreasing as the patients improve and move towards a transition to extubation, for example. Deeper sedation may also be required early on to protect lines and devices, especially endotracheal tubes, which may not be as critical or may be removed as the child improves and again, sedation can be lightened. Without this reassessment, patients run the risk of being over-sedated or on prolonged exposure to sedative medications. As we've also emphasized the value of early mobility, it sort of stands to reason that the sedation target should lighten as it becomes more appropriate to mobilize patients more and more. Pretty hard for a deeply sedated patient to do much mobility on their own. But that said, it's really important for providers to find a proper balance between over and under sedation. Over sedation, as we know, increases the risk of delirium, lengthens time on the ventilator, and limits things like mobility whereas under-sedation can, in addition to what we've just discussed, contribute to some of the adverse psychological effects that may not manifest themselves until after the child has left the PICU or even the hospital, such as post-intensive care syndrome. Dr. Birkenbosch, we see that the guidelines suggest use of protocolized sedation, although the RESTORE study found no difference between the institutions which used protocolized versus non-protocolized sedation for mechanical ventilated patients. Thanks, Pradeep, and this is true. Although we also had data in addition to the RESTORE trial, which informed that suggestion to use protocolized sedation. 
The main advantages with protocolization are that medications can be given or infusions adjusted based on the desired sedation target automatically without there being a phone call or page to a physician for every change. In most of the reports that were available to us, including the RESTORE trial, this person was primarily the bedside nurse, and this makes the most intuitive sense to me as that's the provider who is most frequently at the bedside and therefore has the best idea of what the patient is doing from a comfort perspective throughout their shift. When use of these protocols is tied to a target sedation level, they can also aid in ensuring that patients are less likely to be exposed to excessive amounts of medication, although as a task force, we certainly recognize that this is a topic for which further study is definitely needed. Related to this, while I think most of us think about sedation protocols being useful during the acute phase of illness when the patient is intubated, We were also able to find a reasonable amount of literature describing the use of protocolization during the weaning of sedatives and analgesics, and that this practice resulted in more rapid discontinuation of sedative and analgesic medications without, interestingly enough, increasing the risk of development of withdrawal syndromes. So that made us able to make a conditional recommendation for the use of sedation wean protocols in addition to the acute phase protocols, if you will. So no more daily sedation holidays or daily sedation interruptions? That's another great question. With the increasing desire to limit sedative exposure for good reasons, there's been a lot of early interest in the use of daily sedation interruptions. And some of the initial evidence here appeared to show some promising advantages. However, a more recent and larger multicenter randomized controlled trial found that there were some adverse outcomes associated with the use of daily sedation interruptions including increased mortality. Additionally, since so few patients in the protocolized arm of the RESTORE trial actually required a daily sedation interruption because of over-sedation, we felt that the use of protocolized to make sedation interruptions unnecessary, as appropriately used protocols can be the mechanism by where sedative exposure is already minimized. The guidelines advocate for the use of alpha-2 agonists as the primary sedative class in critically ill pediatric patients requiring mechanical ventilation. What are the advantages of using this for sedation? I suspect a lot of your listeners are already aware of the attractive properties of alpha agonists, including minimal respiratory depression, some mild analgesic effects which can aid in reducing opiate exposure, and they're a class of sedative that, based on EEG studies, facilitates a sedated state that more closely mimics that seen in natural sleep compared to any other sedative that we have. In head-to-head comparisons with benzodiazepines, alpha agonists were found to be equally efficacious from a sedative perspective, and given the increasing data available regarding the risk of delirium development with benzodiazepine exposure, these properties all tip the scales to favor alpha agonist-based sedative regimens. While some have expressed concerns that bradycardia and hypotension are more common with alpha agonists, the data available actually suggested that there's no difference in the occurrence of either of these events or the need for intervention for drug-related cardiovascular adverse events with alpha agonists. The qualifier about alpha agonist addition to patients already on heart rate-reducing medications, however, remains relevant and appropriate. Now, just to summarize, the use of dexmedetomidine is also recommended as the primary agent for sedation in critically ill pediatric postoperative cardiac surgical patients with expected early extubation. Frequently during our CI rotations, we do uh, see dexmedetomidine as a continuous infusion being used. Now, they also recommend 
use of dexmedetomidine or Presidex for sedation in critically ill pediatric postoperative cardiac surgical patients to also decrease the risk of tachyarrhythmias as this medication decreases the catecholamine surge. An important transition period for the critically ill patient is the peri-extubation period. We see that Pandem has a bundle approach along with use of propofol. Dr. Borkenbosch, can you give us more information on the approach to sedation analgesia during the peri-extubation period? Sure, that's absolutely true, Pradeep. And to quote the guidelines, during the peri-extubation period, when sedation is typically lightened, we suggest the following bundle strategies to decrease the risk of inadvertent device removal. One is to assign a target sedation depth at increasing frequency to adapt to changes in patient's clinical status and communicate strategies to reach that titration goal. Two, to consider a sedation weaning protocol. Three, to consider unit standards for securement of endotracheal tubes and a safety plan for that. And four, to restrict nursing workloads to facilitate more frequent patient monitoring, decreased sedation requirements, and the risk of self-harm to patients. Now, that's a big bundle, and I want to make sure that I acknowledge with that recommendation that not every part of it can be implemented equally in all ICUs. We certainly recognize that there are restricting nursing loads in particular may not always be feasible as many areas are experiencing nursing shortages. However, again, when feasible, the literature supported the addition of these bundle elements to reduce the likelihood of unintended accidental extubations. To move on to propofol, there's a relative paucity of data, so we were only able to make a good practice statement here regarding the value of propofol in the peri-extubation period. But we do specifically make the suggestion that propofol for short-term infusions up to 48 hours can facilitate reductions in other sedative or analgesic agents, specifically those that have respiratory suppressing properties to them, just prior to extubation, and then utilize the short half-life that propofol has to facilitate a rapid extubation following its discontinuation. Excellent. Then after extubation, we're concerned with atrogenic withdrawal syndrome, or IWS. Can you speak to some of the takeaways from Pandem regarding IWS? Sure. And quite honestly, this was an area where we struggled some outside of some of the things that I think we all take as being obvious. As with what we described with sedation and analgesia assessment, one of the first things we do is recommend the use of validated withdrawal assessment tools. However, the tools that we have available to us right now are only validated for use in assessing opiate or benzodiazepine-based withdrawal. And this is part of the struggle since we advocate and suggest the use of alpha-agonist-based sedation. And part of the problem is that we really don't have a full characterization of what the alpha-agonist withdrawal syndrome looks like, and consequently, we don't have a validated alpha-agonist withdrawal assessment tool. We did try to make some concrete suggestions as well about when to screen, as this also remains a topic of debate, I think. And based on the risk factors we identified for withdrawal, we suggested that routine withdrawal screening should be occurring in every PICU patient after as little as three to five days of drug exposure, especially when higher doses of sedative or analgesic agents are required. Despite stating above that we haven't fully characterized alpha agonist withdrawal, we did feel that we should comment some on screening for withdrawal to that class of agents. Specifically, and until a validated screening tool is developed, monitoring for alpha agonist withdrawal should be performed using a combination of associated symptoms, and in particular, unexplained hypertension or tachycardia, 
along with the use of a validated benzodiazepine or opiate screening tool. Not surprisingly, from a treatment perspective, when withdrawal does develop, it should be treated by replacement, either via intravenous or enteral route, with a drug from the class that the patient is deemed to be withdrawing from. So opiates for opiate withdrawal, benzodiazepines for benzodiazepine withdrawal, or an alpha agonist for alpha agonist withdrawal. But we were unable to find any literature describing a formula from which to base the replacement dosing recommendations. So this, along with characterization of alpha agonist withdrawal, remain areas in withdrawal that require further investigation. Dr. Birkenbosch, can you also comment on medications that we can use for patients who are unable to maintain an optimal sedation depth? Of course. Unlike with analgesics, we have several sedative options available to us beyond the most commonly used ones, which are alpha agonists and benzodiazepines. Probably the two next most common ones or next second-tier agents are propofol and ketamine. And we understand that propofol has many attractive properties and we suggest that it can be used as a second-tier agent, but with some important limitations on dose, keeping it less than 4 milligrams per kilogram per hour, and duration, keeping it to under 48 hours, in order to reduce the risk of propofol infusion syndrome development. And while it's true that this syndrome continues to be a source of controversy within the pediatric critical care community, based on the literature available, these limitations are well-supported at this time. Similarly, Ketamine is another drug that's available, and we do suggest that in patients unable to be adequately sedated with more conventional agents, ketamine can be added as an adjunct sedative. All right. To summarize, complications of prolonged sedation include prolonged mechanical ventilation, prolonged pediatric ICU length of stay, delirium, and iatrogenic withdrawal, which we went into greater detail. Now that we've talked about sedation as well as analgesia, Let's switch gears and talk about another adjunct, neuromuscular blockade. Dr. Birkenbosch, what do the guidelines suggest with regards to neuromuscular blockade use in the pediatric ICU? Thanks, Rahul. This was another area where we as a task force struggled to be able to address all the questions that we had. And the simple reason for this is that while neuromuscular blocker use remains pretty pervasive in our population, literature evaluating both appropriate indications and or benefits of neuromuscular blocker use remains extremely limited. Despite that, we do suggest that when deemed clinically necessary, practitioners use the lowest dose of neuromuscular blockers required to achieve the desired clinical effect, which may be complete or incomplete neuromuscular blockade. We also suggest that when used, routine monitoring of the neuromuscular blockade depth be performed to prevent excessive drug exposure which can delay the ability to wean sedation and mechanical ventilation upon discontinuation. We suggest the monitoring of blockade depth using train-of-form monitoring, unless the strategy of incomplete blockade is used, as the presence of spontaneous movement argues against excessive blockade. While some have described the use of neuromuscular blocker holidays to prevent excessive blockade, this was an area where the available literature was insufficient to allow us to make a recommendation and remains an area that needs further study. Related to depth of blockade is the question of the adequacy of sedation during neuromuscular blocker use, and I think this is an area where a lot of us struggle as clinicians at the bedside. While we suggest that sedation and analgesia should be adequate to prevent awareness, we recognize that assessing this during neuromuscular blockade use is challenging, and this also remains an area where reliance on vital signs may play a bigger role. 
We also suggest that use of EEG-based sedation monitors might be helpful in this area, although there is limited literature regarding their actual application during neuromuscular blockade in PICU patients. And lastly, we're able to recommend the use of passive eyelid closure and eye lubrication for the prevention of corneal abrasions in critically ill children requiring neuromuscular blockade. Awesome. Let's uh, wrap up our episode by discussing delirium. Dr. Birkenbosch Pandem recommends routine screening for ICU delirium using a validated tool in PICU patients upon admission, discharge, and transfer. What tools are we talking about here? I think this is a really important section of the guidelines, Kate, because I think that we as a critical care community, in pediatrics at least, are still learning to understand the importance of delirium in our population. So just as with pain and sedation and withdrawal, Delirium is amenable to being screened for, and we recommend routine screening of every PICU patient at least once a day for delirium using a validated screening tool. At this time, the only validated screening tools for us are either the preschool or pediatric confusion assessment methods for the ICU, or PCAM-ICU, and the Cornell Assessment for Pediatric Delirium, or CAPD. And after we determine that a patient is delirious, what are some strategies that Pandem recommends to decrease ICU delirium? Sure. As with many adverse ICU outcomes, the first steps in delirium management are to limit or mitigate modifiable risks, such as treating the underlying medical disease, whether it be infection, hypoxemia, hypotension, by reducing sedative exposure, especially benzodiazepines, as we've discussed before and promoting a PICU environment that is as conducive to sleep as possible. And any pharmacologic strategies if patients are refractory to these strategies? Yeah. One of the concerns we had as a task force was a perception that typical or atypical antipsychotics have become fairly widely used in a lot of PICU patients with delirium and are sometimes used in settings without working on the steps just discussed above in, by, in mitigating modifiable risks and treating underlying disease, etc. The literature available simply does not support the routine use of these agents. They don't prevent delirium development, and they also do not reduce the duration of delirium when used like this. So what we suggest, rather, is that the use of atypical or typical antipsychotics should be restricted to patients with refractory delirium or with severe delirium manifestations that puts them at risk of self-injury. And if these agents are used because of possible adverse cardiovascular effects, among others, we do also suggest a baseline electrocardiogram be obtained and that routine electrolyte and QT interval monitoring be performed. That's a great summary, Dr. Birkenbosch. And just to kind of take a bird's eye perspective, ICU delirium is actually defined as acute brain dysfunction with cardinal features of inattention and acute or fluctuating mental status. Predisposing factors for ICU delirium include the following younger age, Developmental delay, cyanotic heart disease, mechanical ventilation, sedative depth and choice, amongst other factors. Now, delirium, as we know, can prolong ICU as well as hospital length of stay and especially can increase cost of care. Now, non-pharmacological approaches, especially uh, with the focus on prevention, optimizing sleep hygiene, like we mentioned, family engagement on rounds, and family involvement with direct patient care is recommended. And then finally, routine use of haloperidol or antipsychotics for delirium prevention or reducing the duration of delirium can be 
uh, noted in critically ill pediatric patients on a case-by-case basis. So especially for delirium, I believe that optimizing the pediatric ICU environment is essential in the prevention of delirium. Can you, Dr. Bergamash, comment on what you mean by optimizing the PICU environment? Sure. And I think this is nicely illustrated in our summary table and in the figure. That optimization of the environment not only focuses on the child comfort, but it also addresses family decision-making and the importance of the multidisciplinary team. One of the conditional recommendations we made was a suggestion to use a standardized early mobility protocol that outlines readiness criteria for mobility, contraindications, and the developmental appropriateness of mobility activities. Other activities that are sort of more day-to-day environmental recommendations include the use of noise-reducing devices such as earplugs or headphones to reduce the impact of non-modifiable ambient noise. And additionally, we talk about the facilitation of parental and caregiver presence in the PICU during routine care, as well as during interventional procedures, as they may optimize the environment and reduce levels of stress and anxiety, both for the patients and for their families, which is important. I think that is a great summary, as well as a take-home point for today's episode. The overall goal is to really focus on the triad of patient, the care team, as well as the family in order to optimize outcome and increase level of satisfaction of care. Understanding the patient's developmental status and functional state is essential as we integrate an optimal pediatric ICU environment with regards to sedation and mobility. Dr. Birkenbosch, thank you so much for your expertise on the PANDEM guidelines, and we greatly appreciate your time as a guest on Pick you Doc on Call podcast, as well as my co-fellow, Kate Phelps, thanks so much for coming on today's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This concludes our episode on pain, agitation, neuromuscular blockade, and delirium in critically ill pediatric patients with consideration of the PQ environment and early mobility, also known as the PENDEM guidelines. We thank Dr. Birkenbosch for being the guest expert on our podcast. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kumar, Dr. Kate Phelps, and Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.